Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. Welcome back or welcome to What on Earth, a monthly business discussion on Australia's transition to net zero and post-carbon and what we need to know and understand about the broader strategic issues that are and will impacting our business. My name is James Scotland and I'm the General Manager of Supply Chains for the Australian Industry Group. And joining me each episode to discuss and dissect the issues are my two learned colleagues and good friends, my two amigos. Firstly, Tenet Reid, who is the Head of National Policy and uh, National Policy for Environment and Energy at the Australian Industry Group. Hello, Tenet. G'day. And Paul Hudson, the Principal Consultant of Paul Hudson Advisory and CEO of Scaling Green Hydrogen Cooperative Research Centre. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. Hi, Tennant. Good to be back with you. And it's our Christmas issue. So Merry Christmas to both of you. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be uh, on, uh, on a short break. Uh, but uh, what on earth will take uh, a couple of months break and we'll be back in the new year. So this is our final chat for the year in this format. So we probably should catch up. How's your week been, Tenet? Have you been having fun? How's your month been? It has been wall to wall lately. Uh, I'm in the, as we record, I'm in the lead up to uh, clearing the decks more or less to head off to COP28, uh, but if things have not been letting up locally. There's been lots of uh, of briefings uh, to, to members, lots of work on the uh, carbon leakage review that the federal government has initiated, which is going to look at a carbon border adjustment mechanism and other options for preventing industry uh, leaving Australia due to a tighter carbon constraint than some other economies. And there's a lot of conversations about hydrogen, about uh, the uh, emissions, or the, the, the clean investment taxonomy, uh, about the future of gas. My goodness, it's all happening. I, I don't know whether I'm coming or going. <laughs> um which is, I guess, you know, the exact description of a transition, isn't it? You never know what you're doing. That's right. Uh, and we'll talk about a few of those things today. I think a COP and CBAM I'd like to ask you about. And Paul, what's been on uh, on your desk for the last month? Uh, what's keeping you uh, excited? Well, the big thing for us since the last, um, last time we spoke was the uh, Cooperative Research Centre bid for Scaling Green Hydrogen. We had our final interview in Canberra. In fact, we are now waiting uh, for the government's decision on not only ours, but the other five shortlisted bidders for this round 24 of the program. Uh, those decisions may actually be made and announced before this goes live. So, uh, so that's been a big thing. And in, Fingers in the crossed. Last, thank you. Um, it's been a couple of years we've been developing this at least, and uh, we, we hopefully we'll get funded for the next 10. We think there's at least 10 years worth of work in scaling green hydrogen to be done. Um, in the last couple yep. of weeks as well, there's been the uh, the EOI process for the Hydrogen Head Start program has closed. So it'll be interesting. The government will be looking at that and or the department will be looking at that and seeing who put in what and sorting through that. So And it's been a big year. So it's quite nice at this time of year to be clearing the decks a little bit taking a deep breath, digesting what's happened. I think next year is going to be a big year of how it all fits together, particularly domestically. I think there's been a lot of new initiatives, uh, state, territory, federal government, private sector, 
and the geopolitical environment is still uncertain globally, but domestically, I think how a lot of it shapes and how it fits together will be next year's job. I heard that uh, when they uh, opened the applications for the Hydrogen Head Start program, that there was so much interest, the system crashed. So uh, they may have a lot of, uh, of work to do to, to sift those applications in the next little while. What's that, what's that indication of? A massive interest, I, I assume it means it's a, a massive interest in, in the offer. Absolutely. Um, yeah, look, I, I think the, the fact that Australia's got 40% of the announced hydrogen projects in the world means that people are quite interested in what the Australian government might be able to do to help their business case to get some of those projects going. So uh, probably unsurprising the interest. I think the government's got a lot of work to do because they're talking about funding two or three projects and they would have got mm. inundated with lots and lots of projects, uh, probably in the at least 20 to 30, I would have thought. Well, we'll see. Well, whilst you've been doing that, I've been, um, I've been uh, at the Indigenous Chamber of Commerce uh, annual conference, and uh, it's just staggering to see what Indigenous-owned organisations and, and companies are doing. Uh, and it's not just a um, – for me, it seems like it's not just a talk about topic. They, they actually are directly connected to the earth and, and, and to the environment and might be something that expands as we head into the transition. It's, a, it's an interesting thought, and it's great to be at the conference. Paul, you mentioned uh, geopolitical uh, situations. Um, just prior to recording this, uh, the uh, US president and the Chinese president have met and been talking about climate change. Is it someone want to give us an update of what that means and particularly what it means for Australia? Has anyone got any opinions on what it means um, in, a, in a big sense, but also what it means for Australia? So uh, the... The world does not make a lot of progress on climate unless China and America are both making progress themselves and talking to each other. And they have had like a, a pretty tumultuous relationship over recent years. Uh, it is always a good sign when we head into a COP where there has been uh, a significant statement of continued cooperation among them. And there were some very interesting specifics in the things that they committed to, uh, including uh, making some statements about what the next round of nationally determined contributions, the commitments to emissions reduction and other important aspects of climate response that countries make every few years, uh, what those are going to contain. And uh, China, for instance, well, both of them committed that their next NDCs would address methane. Uh, which was not really covered meaningfully in China's uh, previous commitment. Uh, so uh, there's also language in there about uh, reductions, the, the, the pace of reductions after uh, peaking emissions and some language that unfortunately is slightly different in its interpretation or the way it's been been put down is a bit different between the English version and the Chinese version of this agreement. Um, it appears to place um, reductions uh, in, in net emissions as a, as a this decade thing and a, a various other crucial actions as a this decade thing for China. 
but that close association doesn't look quite as close in the Chinese text. So I guess the saga continues, but it's 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 much better than when they just weren't talking to each other, which has been the case at times recently. Yeah, I think it's uh, regardless almost of what they say, the fact that they're meeting, the fact that the lines of communication are open, I think is a really good thing for uh, uh, for global uh, security and global certainty in a lot of cases, and and obviously. Uh, Australia's prime minister has recently been in China as well. Um, China does seem to be, uh, the, the links with China seem to be open. Um, I think there's still a lot of um, uh, disagreements, but if they're talking, then that's a good thing. Yeah, well, we're heading into uh, the, the Christmas period where there's not always total agreement around the Christmas table, but, you know, if you're talking, you're talking. So I'll, 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 I'll pull that connection together somehow. Um, you mentioned <laughs> that's right. That's what we want for the world. Hopefully, there's a there's a piece of pudding with a silver charm in it for everyone. <laughs> you no broken teeth though. Careful, careful when taking that bite of pudding. Oh, uh, it can always be dangerous. Can't it? Um, you mentioned methane emissions. Um, is that an issue for Australia? Have we have we addressed methane emissions? Do we need to? It is an issue for Australia. Uh, we have signed up, uh, this time last year, we signed up or announced we would sign up to the Global Methane Pledge, which commits to uh, a, a substantial reduction in global methane emissions this decade. And it's a little, it's a little vague on who has which share of that challenge. But we're a significant global methane emitter. Uh, partially thanks to agriculture, partially thanks to uh, coal and gas production. And we have addressed, well, started the process of addressing one piece of that through the safeguard mechanism reforms earlier this year, which put emissions reduction obligations on a bunch of large facilities, including uh, coal mines and gas production facilities. And th those are, those are you know, increasingly tight uh, obligations. So like that's big. We've got a long way to go, though, on uh, actually implementing those reductions uh, at those facilities. And then agriculture, well, we're at the really the, the dawning of the age of methane emissions reduction techniques in ag, or at least the deployment of them. And there's some exciting stuff there, but uh, it's it's very much still in the demonstration phase rather than farmers taking up uh, these feed supplements at a large scale that are one of the most promising ways to, to reduce methane emissions from cattle and sheep. It's a kind of a strange topic to be discussing, isn't it? Because it's all about cattle emissions, I, I understand. Yeah. Burps are a big deal. <laughs> Uh, and uh, globally, uh, I, I mean, everybody has their own way of presenting the stats depending on what they want to show uh, and how you, which uh, time period you measure the global warming potential of different gases over makes a big difference. Methane uh, has a huge impact in the short term and then in terms of additional warming and then it breaks down into CO2 uh, there's all kinds of interesting stuff about how should we think about those methane emissions. 
but they, there's no doubt that globally they are a significant driver of climate change and they need to be at least stabilised. And the lowest level that we can stabilise them at, the easier the rest of, rest of our um, climate challenge will be. So, Paul, it seems to me that everyone has a role to play here. You know, often you hear people say, oh, we've got to fix the agricultural sector, we've got to fix the mining sector. But it's mining sector, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's agriculture, it's transport, it's uh, domestic emissions. There's a whole lot, isn't it? It's a transition of the whole economy. Oh, certainly it is. Uh, everyone has a, a part to play. And it's kind of, I guess, how you orchestrate that, how you incentivize it, how you potentially penalize particular activity is really important and you know consistency and certainty around that is important in terms of driving investment particularly if it's investment into infrastructure and longer term paybacks in terms of business cases which is uh, you know can be 30 40 50 years for some of this so um, i think that's part of the challenge and i think we also have to be clear that why we're doing this is decarbonization and so our commitment to decarbonization individually as businesses, as governments, um, as bilateral and multilateral agreements gets tested, right? Because if, uh, if things are going to be more expensive to decarbonize, then they're going to be more expensive to decarbonize. But we're, we, we're either doing it or we're not, I think, in, mm. in really quite blunt terms. Methane reduction is uh, it's, it's something where we are starting to see uh, much more substantial action. Uh, and the United States, one of the, the less commented on features of their Inflation Reduction Act, we think of that as all carrots, no sticks. Actually, IRA did include uh, the imposition of a new tax, uh, a fee on methane pollution uh, from the oil and gas sector. It doesn't cover coal and it doesn't cover ag, uh, but it does cover a, a very significant uh, pair of industries or, or unified industry in the US. Uh, and the, the, the charge involved is quite high. It's equivalent to, on a 100-year uh, global warming potential basis, a 50 US dollar a tonne carbon tax. Uh, so that is uh, certainly going to drive some change in the economics of um, how you do your, your most efficient and rational oil and gas production in the US. And it's needed because they're expanding output. Uh, they have never produced as much oil and gas as they are producing right now. Under Joe Biden, under uh, an, uh, a policy landscape that is uh, very pro-emissions reduction, there's still a lot of oil and gas being pumped. Uh, so cleaning up uh, that production and reducing demand uh, through the various policies they've got to uh, enhance the take-up of electric vehicles, uh, promote uh, renewables, promote fuel switching and electrification of homes and the whole Megillah. Uh, but reducing emissions at source is going to be really important there. Uh, we're, as I said, we're tackling that through the safeguard so far uh, at the, the production end. And then there's, uh, there's a lot of work left to do in every bit of the country to determine what are, what are our solutions for reduced consumption of natural gas going to be. That doesn't um, 
you know, that's a, a less direct way uh, than of, of getting in emissions than plugging leaks in uh, pipelines or, or wells that directly spew methane. Uh, but it's it's a pretty important part of the transition too to work out well electrification how where for whom uh, and biogas and hydrogen where appropriate how where for whom yeah we've got to um, reduce at the source as you said but we've got to do it in a wider sense as well uh, which is a nice segue into uh, cop. Um, we talk about this every year. Uh, we probably need to start with an introduction to COP and then uh, and, and we'll talk about what it looks like. Do you want to do your normal intro into, uh, into the acronym COP, Tenant, before we get into discussing it? Sure thing. So the COP is the Conference of the Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And it's it's also, simultaneously, uh, the, the conference of the meeting of the parties to the Paris Agreement and uh, the parties to the Kyoto Protocol, all of which are uh, similar groupings of countries, uh, but they're, they're doing legally distinct things. Uh, they negotiate uh, where the, the next phase of um, shared work and uh, shared action on climate change will go. And then superimposed on top of those negotiations, you've got a massive international conference. You've got observers from every part of global society. Uh, you've got a lot of, uh, of, of companies and proponents uh, talking about what they're doing. And you've got all these other uh, smaller alliances or um, informal groupings meeting and, and spruiking the action that they're taking together. So it's a it's a big jamboree, and typically there's about 30,000 people uh, who show up to these things these days. And this one is in the United Arab Emirates, uh, in Dubai, and to the consternation of some people, uh, it is going to be presided over by uh, a, a, a very em eminent Emirati, uh, Sultan al Jaber who is also in his day job the head of the National Oil Company of the UAE, uh, which has got right up the noses of quite a few people, notwithstanding that he's a, um, he's a pretty green-minded and reformist figure to be appointed to that, uh, that oil company role. So it's, it's a big deal. So uh, people who don't follow this as closely as we do would probably hear it described in the uh, media as the, the climate change meeting, but it's not a meeting. It goes for two weeks. Mm. It's multiple. It's a jamboree, as you said. Yeah. And I would think, Tenet, that the person who's most concerned about understanding the transition would be the person who's in charge of Arab oil because their, <laughs> their golden goose is about to change, isn't it? Isn't that a good thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and look, this is not the first fossil intensive uh, economy to host a COP. Uh, Poland is uh, as coal, uh, has been historically as coal dependent as well as Australia uh, and has hosted COP three times. Australia's in the running to host COP in uh, 2026. Uh, but you're right, the what is going to happen to global oil demand and what lies after oil for places like the Emirates, uh, like Saudi Arabia, that is hugely on the mind of those countries. And whereas some time back, that, that being on the mind translated into 
really, to to many people's eyes, trying to hold back global action on climate. Um, These days, it is much more about shaping their own investments and economic strategies so they're actually ready for a transition that they they know is happening. What do you think about COP, Paul? I think it's interesting. I mean, each year, the expectations are different. And this year, while the expectations, I think, are probably lower than they were last year, um, uh, the global uncertainty is only going to increase next year. I think COP29 is supposed to be in Eastern Europe. I don't think it has a host yet because, uh, because finding a, a country in Eastern Europe that meets um, uh, is, is tough. Plus, you've also got the US presidential election late next year, which is making next year going to be pretty difficult from a US perspective. And the UK has a general election next year, and they've had 13 years of uh, conservative rule, but that's potentially going to change next year. Um, and then who knows what's happening with, uh, with uh, Ukraine, what's happening in the Middle East. So actually, you might, this year might actually be uh, a, a COP where you, you get some things done, where next year might be one that it's very difficult to get any other, get any, any international agreement or even maintaining existing international Mm. agreements uh, next year. So uh, this year might might be, I don't think the expectations are as high as last year. I'd be really interested in tenants' view. Uh, last year I thought was quite positive. Um, but yeah, what do you think, Tenant? Well, this is, in, in a lot of ways, this is a stepping stone cop, not a milestone cop. There's, there's a huge buildup of um, uh, focus every few years on on a mega cop, and sometimes that goes very badly, as at Copenhagen. Uh, sometimes it's tremendously successful, as at Paris. In between, you have just a lot of connective tissue to be added. Uh, you have um, work on the development of major initiatives that will ultimately be signed off or, or reach their fullest flower at, at one of these milestones. This year, uh, like I think the single biggest thing that's involved is uh, the global stock take. And so this is a, a process that's called for in the Paris Agreement. Every few years, the parties have got to take advice and take stock of how progress is going towards the objectives of the Paris Agreement. And this stock take has been underway for a couple of years. The report of the stock take is going to be received at the COP. And what are people, what are countries going to agree to do about it? I think that formulating the response is actually going to take a while. Uh, but the findings of the, the the technical part of this stock take, like they're not very surprising. They are that, yes, a lot of important stuff is happening and, and happening as a result in part of the Paris Agreement. But the world is not on track. The commitments that countries have made and the action that they've taken to meet those commitments are not yet sufficient to hold uh, the world within the 1.5 degree goal or even the 2 degree goal. Uh, And a lot more action is needed, says the stock take. Now with the technical report. So what are people going to do in response to that? Is it like a really open question? Because we are sort of running out of time for new uh, upgrades to 2030 commitments to actually be able to translate into any action that will make anything different happen by 2030. Just if you think through 
uh, policy development time, uh, planning approvals time, construction time. Uh, what's in the pipeline now is very close to what we're going to get by 2030. Uh, there's a there's a, a lot more room to shape, you know, the next round of commitments and 2035 and beyond. But 1.5 degrees is a budget problem. Uh, you, you can't just rescue everything at the end uh, necessarily. You, you do have to make progress as you go. And so how are we all going to respond to the fact that we have not been going fast enough? Is it going to be just, well, we'll double down, we'll make stronger commitments, we'll get the reductions done? Uh, it is hard to go at the pace that's required. Is it going to be, uh, oh, well, we acknowledge we're not going to get there through reductions alone and we're going to start explicitly talking about overshoot, emitting more than the carbon budget and then paying back that carbon debt by hauling emissions back out of the atmosphere and sticking them underground through bioenergy, CCS or uh, carbon uh, uh, direct air capture which is a huge commitment, or are we going to start talking about geoengineering and doing wild and crazy things to partly block out the sun to reduce the, uh, the extent to which higher concentrations of greenhouse gases cause higher temperatures for a while? And we really have only the barest idea of what we would be doing in that process. Or do we accept uh, that like 1.5 is missed, but we're going to stick as close to it as possible because every fraction of a degree matters and accept like pretty awful consequences? Um, none of those is an easy option. And I think uh, it's actually going to take a few years before we really know which way the international community is going. Uh, Tanel, let's go back to the beginning. What's the stock take? Are they stock taking whether or not it's the agricultural industry or the or the you know heavy industry, or is it country by country, or what are we trying to understand? They are looking at, uh, in the first instance, all the commitments that nations have made under the Paris Agreement, and then the the policy to reduce emissions and the policies to achieve them. They're also looking at global efforts on adaptation to climate change and at finance for uh, mitigation, re reduction of climate change, adaptation to climate change, and dealing with loss and damage that results from climate change. So it's a, it's a very big uh, assessment, and uh, it's, there's been 18 months' worth of, of dialogues about it leading up to the, the report and the discussion that's going to be received at COP this year. So I think that one's a big deal. There are other things going on at COP. Uh, there are continuing efforts to sort out the detail of the, the mechanism to address uh, loss and damage that was uh, agreed uh, last year. Uh, there is uh, continuing work on Article 6, which is the, the piece of the Paris Agreement about international emissions reduction cooperation emissions trading, but also non-market approaches to cooperation. Uh, and the bit that I will be watching for as a sad tragic uh, is the extent to which uh, trade and climate, the intersection of that, 
forces its way into the agenda. It's not formally on the agenda at all, uh, but some of the biggest stuff going on in climate policy in, in outside of these negotiations is about that. We've seen Turkey announce that it's going to pursue an emissions trading scheme in order to position its goods better for exports to Europe as Europe introduces its carbon border adjustment mechanism. UK is uh, moving towards a carbon border adjustment mechanism. People on both sides of uh, the aisle in the US Congress are proposing carbon tariffs despite the lack of a carbon price in most of the US economy. Uh, There's a lot of stuff happening and the extent to which any of that makes its way into uh, these negotiations and the side discussions will be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about CBAM shortly. But staying with uh, uh, COP itself, uh, you mentioned that uh, we're not keeping up to commitments uh, to get to 1.5 or 2%. All this investment into hydrogen uh, around the world, including Australia, is that going to have an impact when it comes on? Is there going to be like this step increase of improvement when all the hydrogen projects come on board? Well, uh, I reckon... Paul's got some insights on the the, the the total contribution hydrogen can make. But I was looking at you, Paul Hudson. <laughs> Go on to it. Oh, well, just that, I mean, yes, there is a lot of hydrogen activity around the world that is taking shape, like policy activity that is turning into commitments uh, of like financial commitments from companies. I think that's great. I also think, though, that in the next decade, the biggest result of all that will be reductions in the cost of hydrogen, uh, of, of new hydrogen uh, capacity. And I, it's once those cost reductions have taken place through initial deployment, that really massive deployment, which makes an appreciable uh, dent in global emissions, will start to take place. Yeah. And look, I would add that, uh, look, hydrogen and particularly obviously zero emission hydrogen will play a role, but I think our, our initial, uh, a, a lot of the world can be, uh, can be decarbonized through electrification. So, um, so we, what we want to do is try and bring down, continue to bring down the cost of electrification and deploy it more because that will actually help the hydrogen cost down the track as well. If we're trying to do all things at once, we may drive the prices up and make it actually even more expensive. So, um, so it should be, it should be, mm-hmm. we should be doing, I, I mean, we, we don't want to be just doing the low hanging fruit, but actually it does make sense to do the low hanging fruit as long as we're, de- we're still keeping an eye on how we're developing the longer term solutions that are going to help us fully decarbonize, I think is really important. So there's a, there's a number of tools in the toolkits and they're all at various degrees of commerciality. But renewables is very commercial and storage yep. is quite commercial. So that should be where we really should be putting our focus. And I think that's really the focus for the Australian government for its 2030 targets is, is really looking to the electricity sector to do the heavy lifting, knowing that the 2030s and 2040s, we can pick up more of the industrial work. But putting the signals in place now might help. Yeah. And there is, as you say, Paul, there is big synergy between those pushes because for the 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 biggest potential growth in clean hydrogen production is in 
electrolytic hydrogen. I mean, there's a there's potential for blue hydrogen in Australia and around the world, but for really mega hydrogen scenarios, that's that's electrolysis of water and uh, renewables. Uh, the cost of renewable electricity or clean electricity is one of the biggest chunks of the cost of clean hydrogen. So more deployment, uh, getting those technologies further down their cost curve uh, makes sense for the, the end uses that will wind up just being directly electrified, but it also makes sense for the uses that will wind up being, I don't know, hydrogenated? Is that what we say? Uh, I think you could say that, Tennant. I think you can say that. That sounds good. Inaccurate chemistry, but it'll it'll work as <laughs> for terminology, maybe. That sounds like margarine. Yes, that's right. What are you expecting out of COP uh, personally, uh, Tennant? You mentioned watching trade. Uh, you've been to a number of these now. Yeah, so th- that is the the thing that I'll be watching the most closely. Uh, but the other thing is just to take a sample of uh, what the um, energy sector globally, the the national uh, policy environment, the the ideas coming out of the scientific community and the environmental community and the different pieces of the business community. Like it's just a great place to see where things are at and uh, try and take some sips from the fire hose uh, without um, getting completely overloaded. Well, I hope you have a great time in Dubai. I, I haven't been to Dubai. I've been through Dubai, but I haven't been there. So I look forward to a travel log from you as well. Uh, food, <laughs> food, and that we'll see if I make it up the, the, to the to the top of the Burj Khalifa. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, when you get back, uh, you'll be no doubt turning your mind to one of your other favourite topics, which is CBAM, uh, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or various names. So let's move on to that. Let's talk about that because that directly uh, affects the Australian uh, uh, economy. You mentioned Turkey is looking at one, the UK, US has started talking about a tariff. Uh, do you want to just frame the, the position? What's it all about, uh, and then Paul, you hop in with some thoughts. Yeah, well, so, I mean, ultimately what this is about is the fear of carbon leakage, the fear that an economy which imposes a tight carbon constraint domestically is going to see its industries either leave or get outcompeted by industries that are subject to lighter policy or, or no policy. The grounds for that fear have shifted over the years because the Paris Agreement has seen more widespread global action than ever before and lots of good things are happening. Also, the costs of emissions reduction for some critical activities like electricity generation are much lower or even negative versus where we thought years ago that they would be. But we are asking industries like steel or cement or uh, aluminium or uh, basic chemicals to adopt production technologies that are emerging, which are much lower emissions or or zero emissions, uh, but also look like they have an enduring cost premium before policy over conventional production. Certainly that's the case for uh, for steel. Uh, And so if they're going to make those investments, they've got to expect to make their money back. Uh, And how are we going to ensure that? And there are a lot of possible approaches to 
solving that problem, the federal government's got a, a review underway, uh, which is looking at all of those options and is going to produce some recommendations by the end of September 2024. Uh, but the most prominent option is a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is basically for an economy that has a domestic carbon price that applies to production within it, you apply that same carbon price to imports of products that you're worried about. So uh, a ton of steel coming in would face the same carbon price as a steel uh, as steel made inside Australia. Uh, it's trying to establish a level playing field so that uneven policy doesn't determine uh, where uh, industry winds up locating, but the actual underlying economics of who can make the cleanest steel the cheapest. Paul, where does uh, the economic development people such as yourself sit on this? Is this a good thing for economic development? I think, I think these things can be. Uh, if they're done, uh, if it's just a one-off, then maybe not. But if it's done as part of a collection of, of policies that work together, including internationally. So the, the idea of a CBAM, someone doing a CBAM means that others are going to start doing a CBAM, you would think, because... Uh, and, and what that does is then that drives producers to develop a, a, a product for the world that, or, or to change their behavior because they start losing market access or it's disincentivized. So it can work as a really good incentive. But again, it comes down to the, the long-term certainty and consistency of this. Um, there'll be some bilateral stuff that happens, you know, like, you know, they're doing that, so we'll do it. But if it becomes much more of a multilateral, it becomes the... The, the the business as usual, then that's a good thing. And uh, I, I think we we need more incentives, I think, domestically to be able to do that. And if we can if we can sort of have a line from your small or medium enterprise manufacturer, which means that actually you're in the supply chain for a, an exporter, even if you're not an exporter yourself and you're going to be penalized, um, then then that can you know that, that that's an important incentive for your business. Uh, the the danger is 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 if if it's not if you don't keep your eye on the ball because it does it it does can you can end up with some perverse outcomes or some really negative economic development outcomes where people start shifting manufacturing from local from Australia to somewhere else because of something. So you you have to be pretty fleet footed around it uh, to really make sure that you're getting the best outcomes. Yeah, and one of the features of the CBAM, I mean, I should say, the review in Australia is also going to consider the idea of regulations that limit high emissions imports. That's a complicated one. Uh, it's going to consider financial incentives and um, investment by government to help industries decarbonise. It's going to consider a lot of things. But CBAM is a very prominent option and it is plausible that we wind up with one out of this process. One of the features of that that I think is, is not understood as often as it should be is that if you do a CBAM in a genuinely even-handed way where the impost at the border is actually the same as the impost on domestic production, it's not some kind of... Uh, of, of protectionist um, barrier, 
What's going to happen is the selling prices for covered goods are going to go up inside the economy doing the CBAM. So if Australia puts a CBAM on steel, the price of steel within Australia is going to be a little higher after that uh, than it would, would have been otherwise. Uh, because every potential supplier of steel to a domestic customer is going to face either the cost of the CBAM at the border or the cost of the carbon price through the safeguard mechanism within Australia or the cost of making a zero carbon product that doesn't attract any of those other uh, burdens. And so any producer is going to demand their customer pay them for the full cost of the product, including the carbon cost. And if if they if that producer is like reasonably competitive with their counterparts on carbon costs and other costs, they're going to recover all of their carbon cost. Maybe less than all if they're if they're a bit uncompetitive. Maybe more than all if they're unusually clean. They will get more profitable. Uh, and so that's a that's a very interesting effect. That's a much subtler effect. Are you saying it's are you saying it's inflationary? Uh, well, like. Selling prices for steel intensive stuff would go up a bit. Now, how much would they go up compared to the inflation that we have seen in the last few years? Not very much. If you had a really, really aggressive carbon price and a full exposure to it on steel that was sufficient to push you towards a green steel product, in the long term, that might mean steel prices that are 10%, 15% higher than they otherwise would be if current estimates of the cost of green steel uh, in 10 years' time or so are roughly right. So that's not nothing. Uh, that is also not an inflationary death spiral. Personally, I don't buy a huge amount of steel per year, but it is an important component in a lot of other things. Uh, for the whole economy, I it's about one and a half percent of uh, of GDP, I think, tops. Uh, and so, you know, this is this is something that needs to be sorted out, needs to be dealt with with care. But that that price increase effect means the effect on suppliers is different, and the effect on other countries is different. Uh, India recently indicated that it would consider putting a carbon tax on its exports to Europe so that they would get to keep the money rather than their suppliers paying the European CBAM. That, the actual effect of that, if that goes ahead, is that EU consumers will be paying tax to the Indian government effectively. Uh, and if I think I think the Indian government may well understand that, which is why they're thinking so enthusiastically uh, about that policy. But it's a very different world to the oh my god, you're putting a CBAM on us, you bloody Europeans! Uh, this is monstrously unfair. Uh, and I think as as everybody grapples with like the lived experience of these policies, uh, we're going to learn a lot. Hmm. Complex issues. <laughs> every every issue we've discussed today has been complex. I think we need to have a have a Christmas break and try and get ahead around it. It's going to be, uh, as Paul said, it's going to be interesting next year. As we wrap up this year, and thank you for that uh, you know, summation of both COP and and uh, and, and carbon tariffs. Um, let's let's just review. Just take a moment. Just to have a think. What, what would, where are we now compared to a year ago? We'll maybe start with tenants saying, "Is your 
little bit you're on the roll. How are you feeling? I, I just think, look, I, I think we're all uh, in Australia grappling a lot more with the practical challenges to meeting the, the commitments and the, the policy goals that were set in 2022. Uh, and in particular, social license for building big stuff near people is like is a huge huge challenge mm-hmm. uh and i don't know what combination of um sugar and spice we're going to use to resolve that challenge but my my new year's resolutions list is absolutely going to uh, include um resolving social license <laughs> Uh, good luck with that, Superman. Yeah, uh, look, I, I agree. I think it's a bit as I said, you know, earlier on that there's now a lot of the pieces of the puzzle domestically have been better defined than they were a year ago. Uh, the, the current government has now been in for 18 months. It's heading into the second part of its its term. And I think next year will be very much around how does this practically work? Um, in Australia, how does how do the pieces of the puzzle come together? And and I, and I'm thinking there's a greater definition now than there was a year ago. But I'm also mindful. I mean, look, it's great that we're we're heading into Christmas. It's been a long year, but we're also in an El Nino now, um, and it's going to be heat waves and bushfires. And so, mm-hmm. really, just a, I guess a shout out to all the country fire associations and. Rural firefighters and the like, and hopefully we don't have a bushfire season as bad as it may be predicted. Um, I think uh, f- certainly for a lot of people, the, the bushfires of four years ago uh, were uh, well globally immense. Um, I think they added tenants something like five percent to global emissions uh, that year. Yep. But the 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 loss of property and life and uh, yep. trauma that people went through. Hopefully that doesn't occur again. But but that's a real link to climate uh, that we, uh, we, we, we live in a, uh, uh, what is it, a land of, of droughts and flooding rains and, and everything else, as Dor- Dorothy McKellar said. So, uh, so I hope everyone stays safe and secure and we don't get, uh, and we get a, a pretty mild uh, summer, uh, certainly milder than one that's been predicted. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Well, my hope is that uh, we've learnt that uh, this is an issue that needs to be addressed as business people. I noticed that uh, electric vehicle sales are again in September reached uh, uh, the highest level of sales ever, uh, and uh, the backlog that we've been suffering from is starting to be eased. I, I hope that in the new year, as we see more and more electric vehicles on the road, as we confront these climate pressures and we see them in, in our own lives that we start taking this matter seriously and we start really thinking about how we transition and we start moving into what Paul was referring to as the operational mode of the transition. We start putting it together rather than just discussing it and trying to work it out. So with that, guys, um, Merry Christmas. Have a rest uh, and we'll see you in a few months. Um, Merry Christmas, Tenet. Merry Christmas to you, James, and to Paul. Merry Christmas, Paul. Merry Christmas, James, Tennant, and to all the listeners. And uh, I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about next year. There's going to be a lot to talk about next year. Have a great break, uh, and we'll see you in 2024, which is just mind-boggling. Catch you later, guys. Thanks. Okay, bye. See you soon.